Good morning, church. Some of y'all seem unconvinced. Uh, Well, it's been a long time um, rolling over those five verses that that we read earlier today. There are a couple standout words. Rejoicing was one, but the other one that really stood out was hope. And I think if there's one, there's one word that should characterize the Christian life, it's hope. Now, hope, I'm not theologizing yet. I'm just talking about, I'm just talking about the way the world is. Hope is a powerful thing. Hope may be the only truly indispensable thing. As long as there's hope, as long as hope is alive, You can and will keep going. As long as hope is alive, you can keep fighting. As long as hope is alive, you have a purpose and a direction. And when hope dies, it's all over. Now, there's two entangled ideas that we should separate, right? We should distinguish between hope and wishful thinking. And we're kind of sloppy with our language about this sometimes, right? Like, um, like, uh, (laughs) my, my, uh, we were at the baseball game with the church a while back and my son hoped there'd be cotton candy, right? No, 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 that's not really hope, right? That's just wishful thinking, right? Like, um, Wishful thinking is sort of like imagining how things might be better and maybe daydreaming about it. There's no real power behind wishful thinking because wishful thinking is just hypothetical. Wouldn't it be nice if... That's how we talk about wishful thinking. That's not hope. Hope is a whole different story. Hope is... claiming a reality that hasn't fully arrived, but that you know is on the way. Hope is a conviction that that good will prevail, that life will overcome death. Hope is, is, is the conviction that all of this will ultimately matter, and it'll mean something in the end. As Christians, we ought to be a people who are always looking forward. Because that's where God is, right? That's where his glory will be revealed. That's where sufferings come to an end. Romans 5, 2, we read earlier, it says this. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. How do you rejoice in in, in something that's not here yet. How do you rejoice in hope? Why would we rejoice? What is, what is that hope built on? Why do we have confidence in the glory of God that is, as yet, unseen? How many of you 
How many of you had doubts last night that the sun would rise this morning? Could you prove it? But you were certain that it would. We talk about this hope that we have in Christ. It has everything to do with God's heart and his changeless character. You know, I may be a little bit fickle. You may catch me on a good day. You might get the best Pastor Cofer. You might catch me on a different day and get less than that, okay? But with God, he's constant, right? In, in verse 5, it says this, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That, it took me a while to understand that sentence. You know, because I don't want to just read things and let them roll off me. I, I want to understand what that means. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. What does the love of God have to do with hope? Well, if God truly is God, then he can do whatever he wants, right? I mean, God could be petty and cruel, and nobody could stop him. He could be a selfish tyrant, and there's no revolution that could overthrow him. He could be uncaring and aloof, and no one could force him to hear our prayers or show compassion in our weakness. And there's a lot of people who think that that's how God is, you know, in the world today. They think if, if, such, if God does exist, that's how they picture him, uncaring, unmoved, uncompassionate. But to you and me, that's, that's probably unthinkable, right? Like, I can't picture God that way. But out there in the world, it's really not that uncommon. For us who have received the Holy Spirit, we see God for who he is, a compassionate and kind father who cares for his children. And you can wish for a God like that, but you can't know God that way unless the Holy Spirit enables you to. It says in verse 5 that God pours out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of things that the Holy Spirit gets credit for. And we're going to talk about many of them over the next few weeks. But I don't think that this is one that pops to mind right away. If I say, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, probably 10 out of 10 of you will not say, he, he is the conduit through which we receive God's love. Maybe we should start thinking about it more like that, though. Maybe, maybe it would behoove us to start thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit like that. Because that work of, of being the, the way that we receive God's love, that's foundational for so much of the other work that he does. Because our hope is founded on God's love. Here's what I mean by that. God doesn't give us a tidy explanation for everything he does 
or everything he allows to happen. And a lot of those decisions aren't, aren't the decision that we'd make. And if you aren't filled with God's love, then it's likely that you'll want to hold God accountable for everything you don't agree with. What, what I'm saying is if you don't have God's love, you will probably try to become God's judge. Now, that's foolish, of course, right? I mean, who amongst us has the right to judge God? You don't have his perspective. You don't see the, the end from the beginning. You can't read the hearts of men. And you, you have never had to bear the burden of being the king of the universe. That weight has never been on your shoulders. And until it is, you have no business pitting your judgment against God's judgment. But that's a position we don't need to occupy, right? Because if the love of God has been poured into your heart, then you begin to think differently about yourself and your circumstances and the world around you. Your relationship with everything changes. Even your relationship with suffering. I don't wish suffering on any of you. <laughs> um, Paul says that because of this love we have been given, we rejoice even in our sufferings. And I need to clarify this. He is not saying that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings, but rather we rejoice because of them. Now, rejoicing in spite of your suffering is a fine thing, right? That's, that's, what, that's what's meant when people encourage you to count your blessings. You know, you're having a, a down day, you're, you're feeling kind of, you know, self-pitying, and, and somebody says, you know, well, I mean, think about all the good that God has done for you in your life. Sure, this is bad. But compare, compare this situation to all of the good things in your life. Now, that's a healthy thing to do. You should do that from time to time. But Paul goes farther than that. Paul doesn't just say compare your suffering against your blessings. Paul, Paul sort of says your suffering might well be a blessing. He says that we should rejoice in our sufferings because suffering is a powerful tool in shaping us. It's not pleasant. And we're not expected to enjoy the suffering, but we're expected to rejoice in it. That rejoicing is drawn from the knowledge that God loves you. And and for that reason, what you're going through isn't meaningless. And it also isn't permanent. And you aren't finished growing yet. Suffering produces endurance. It's in, it's in, it's in struggling and falling down and crying out to God and being picked back up, that's how we're stretched. 
That's how our limits are pushed. That's, you know, if, if, um, if a runner, say somebody wanted to, um, say somebody wanted to become a runner, right? If they always stopped before the muscle aches, they always stopped before the sweat, they always stopped before the, their lungs kind of were feeling it, they'd never learn to make it very far. The discomfort and then the recovery from them, that's the only way to add miles to the run. And we know this analogy in the body. You go and you start lifting weights. Let's, let's, let's stay on the exercise thing for a minute. If you start lifting weights, um, you've got you to get up to your limit. And what happens is your muscles actually pull apart and they, they tear a little bit and they grow back. That's how they get big. Endurance is, is very important. Um, but endurance implies some duration to it. Endurance is a shaping time. Endurance produces character. And character isn't a switch you flip. Character is a long-term long investment. As we press on, we, we are gradually changed from people who think about God to people who know Him. And that only comes through experience. This process by which the things we say we believe become the well-worn grooves of daily living. It's the, it's the place where the faith we speak gets put to the test and proven genuine. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And from character grows hope. That essential thing we talked about at the beginning. Hope is the end goal of the suffering. And it's the foundation. The foundation of hope rests on God's love. When God pours his love into our hearts, we relate to the world around us through hope, right? Hope transforms things. It's not just, you know, that Christian hope changes how we behave. It actually transforms history and the world that we inhabit in real time. And the most visible and visceral and clear and profound example of that change is the cross on Calvary. Think for a moment about what most of the people that were there that day saw. A, a blasphemer being put to death for his sins. That's what they saw. And many people today, they see the cross as you know, a tragic injustice. Well, there's a good man dying at the hands of the wicked, like many good men do. But the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see that day for what it truly is. A loving and compassionate God sacrificing his beloved son to give sinners like you and me forgiveness and life. When we look at the cross, it, it's not the tragedy of injustice. It's the victorious 
culmination of thousands of years of God's redeeming work. And when you and I look at the cross, we aren't filled with anger or despair. We're filled with God's love. And we're given a hope that will never put us to shame. We're given a hope that rejoices in the glory to come and rejoices even in our present sufferings because of the love that God has poured out for us, into us, through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will grow us in hope, that your Holy Spirit will open wide the channel of your love, that it will rinse through every part of us, that we won't shelter any, any bit of us from your love, that we won't let cynicism or fear or anxiety or doubt uh, have a foothold in our heart, but instead, Lord, that we would be permeated in every cell of our body by your hope so that as we go through this life, a life of ups and downs and a life of easy comfort and a life of difficulty, struggle, and suffering, that in every circumstance, we'll rejoice in that circumstance, knowing that none of it's beyond your control, that not a bit of it's beyond your redemption, and that even through our suffering, you're working to bring about your highest good. Thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has purchased and won us, redeemed us, claimed us, who has sanctified not just our future, but also forgiven our past and made it all part of your beautiful story of our lives. All these things we pray in his name. Amen.